HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. Kotema, food writer and director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from a studio at Rogers in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every daily in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi ramen izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, so I try to demystify it in this program with my good guests. My guest today is John Clip. He's a graduate of Culinary Institute of America, a so-called CIA, and after working at uh, a reputable Japanese restaurant in New York, he went to Japan and worked at one of the greatest uh, kaiseki restaurants, uh, Arashiyama Kumahiko, in Kyoto for two years until last September. Working in a Japanese kitchen is not easy for many reasons, from language and cultural prayers to visa issues. But John conquered all those challenges and had precious culinary and life experiences in Kyoto. So today we'll find out how John discovered the charm of Japanese cuisine, how the, the I'm sorry, um, how he landed the unique job at traditional kaiseki restaurant in Kyoto, what he has learned there, and much, much more. But quickly before we start, Japan is available on Heritage Radio Network website as well as on iTunes, Stitch, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitch, and Spotify and subscribe to Japan Needs. And please write a review. I really appreciate your feedback. And uh, I have a quick an- announcement. I wrote a book about Japanese food and it just came out in December 20th. And it is called A Complete Guide to Japanese Cuisine. And the Japanese title is Eigo de Gaido. There are two titles because it's written in both English and Japanese side by side. And the book is kind of a mini encyclopedia of Japanese food. And it covers 90 dishes, sweets and beverages with fun facts along with the foundational philosophy and history of Japanese cuisine. And you can bring the book with you on your trip to Japan or to your favorite Japanese restaurant as a guidebook. And if you work at a Japanese restaurant, it can be your go-to reference. Also, if you grew up in Japan and the book is useful for explaining basics of Japanese cuisine accurately to non-Japanese people. Or it can be a fun textbook for both English and Japanese language learners. It is available in bookstores in Japan and on Amazon Japan, which is amazon.co.jp. And you can order it uh, from Japanese bookstores such as Kinokuniya, if you live outside Japan as well. And uh, it will be available on Kindle uh, anywhere in the world soon. So uh, please stay tuned. And again, the title is A Complete Guide to Japanese Cuisine. And in Japanese, it's I hope you'll enjoy reading it. Now let's start a conversation with John Clip. Hello, John. Welcome. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, I'm so excited to have you. So you. you have such an interesting background. So let's get into it. Sure. So you are uh, from Toronto, Canada originally? Yeah, born and raised there. 
Okay. What did you eat when you grew up? I grew up eating a whole bunch of different food. Both of my parents were、uh, cooking a lot at home when I was young, and a、uh, huge variety of stuff. My dad、uh, was working in real estate and investment. He'd you know go to work early in the morning and then come back and、uh, even on a weekday cook all sorts of stuff.、Uh, he grew up in、uh, Mexico City, so he was cooking a lot of Mexican food as well as Spanish food. Oh、um, wow! Yeah, so、uh, you know, like a Tuesday night might be. Like rabbit and snail pie、uh, wow, when, when I was a little kid. Uh, so uh, yeah, huge variety of stuff. My mom was also cooking a lot,、uh, a lot of vegetables. She didn't grow up well when I was growing up. She wasn't eating a lot of meat, so、uh, mostly vegetarian at home.、Um, but yeah, huge, huge variety from all over the world.、Mm. I was really, really lucky. Right. Okay. So,、uh, so how did you get into cooking? Like outside your family influence? Well.、Uh, I didn't start cooking professionally until I took a dishwashing job when I was about fourteen.、Um, I guess I had read a few Anthony Bourdain books, and、mm. I needed a job. I was, you know, a kid, so、uh, I started working at an Italian restaurant, just washing dishes.、Um, I wasn't so interested in making food myself at that time, but I fell in love with the kitchen culture and the people that were working there,、um, and that really drew me into、uh, to working in kitchens. So、mm. as、uh, as soon as I could, I wanted to be cooking. Right. Oh, okay. So,、um, and then I heard that you worked at、uh, Tosho Knife Arts in Toronto, Canada. So, what is Tosho Knife Arts, and why did you work for the Japanese knife company? Toronto is a crazy place. It's、uh, about a third the size of New York, but the amount of Japanese knife stores right now in Toronto is greater than any American city.、Uh, it's yeah, it's it's insane. the 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 culture there of of specifically Japanese knives is. Uh, contagious, really.、Um, I got introduced to them、uh, when I was working as a cook in an Italian restaurant, and I was realizing that the rental knives I was using at the time were were garbage and really, you know, weren't weren't doing the job. You know, destroying the food that、uh, that we were trying to make. So、um, I just went in. I heard about it on you know online and、um, started going almost every week to Tosho and learning from the、uh, the two owners, Ivan and Olivia. Um, so after weeks and months of of going in,、uh, they eventually offered me a job. I guess they figured they'd get some use out of me while I was while I was in the store, and I started working there. Wow! So sounds like maybe that was a good entrance、yeah. to Japanese cuisine because it's like a proper. W- without、way. Tosho, I would not be interested in Japanese food. There's no way.、Mm. Yeah. Right. So you worked there for a while. I worked there for a while, and while I was there,、um, I had the opportunity to visit. A Japanese knife maker,、uh, Shosui Takeda,、uh, actually here in well, not far from here in New Jersey. He goes and does knife shows all over the world. So I met him, and he offered to show me some things in his workshop in Japan. So I visited、uh, in Okayama five、mm. or six years ago,、um, Takeda's workshop, and that was my first time going to Japan. That was my first time eating Japanese food, and also without him,、uh, I probably would not have. Ever gone into Japanese food? Right. Yeah, Okayama is very close to Kyoto and Osaka, so I'm sure that、yes. was a great exposure. Yeah. To, yeah. It's、uh, a tiny little town. Yeah. Right. Well, it's not a coincidence that they have,、uh, you know, there's a knife company like a kind of hub in Osaka because it's so close to Kyoto. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. Wow. So,、uh, so then, is that why you went to、uh, the CIA, the Culinary Institute of America?、Uh, yes.、Yeah, so、at that point, I was working at、uh, Tosho just after high school. And、uh, I had to go do something next,、uh, so I decided to go to the CIA.、Uh, seemed to be offering a better program than anything that was available in Canada at the time.、Um, so yeah, I came down here to New York for school. And after school, I had the chance to、um, to work in America for a year.、Uh, so I chose to do that in New York City at、mm. uh, two Japanese restaurants, both Kajitsu and Onodera.、Mm. So. Well, let's talk about it because kajitsu is interesting. It's shoujin, which is very few in this even New York City. So, what is shoujin dori, and、uh, what did you learn? I mean, as a chef, what is special about shoujin? Shoujin cuisine can be a lot of things.、Um, fundamentally, it's the cuisine and diet of the monks of Japan, so it's free of any animal protein. Uh, to some people, that also means not using any garlic or spice or other things that sort of、uh, activate the the, the body's、um, what do you call that the、uh, 
your metabolism. Mm. Uh, so it's a very uh, reduced form of cooking. It's it's very minimal, very humble. Mm. Sounds like it keeps you calm. That's why. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Nothing Which I guess is great if you're a monk. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so that's what they were doing at Kaishitsu. They were also following the rules of Kaiseki for the most part. Mm. So that was a multi-course Japanese menu. Right. You know. So um, maybe it's a good time because a lot of people are vegetarians and vegans. Yeah. So, yeah. But uh, what, what are the challenges cooking shojin? It's very, very hard. In Kyoto, it's very hard. In New York, it's super hard <laughs> because we don't have access here to all the things that they have in Japan. There's, you know, the, the infrastructure is different for a restaurant. Um, so it was very, very hard. And the chefs they've had there have done an amazing, amazing job at pushing shoji and kaiseki in, in New York, which as far as I'm aware, has never existed. Mm, right. So, okay. And then uh, you also worked at uh, Sushi Ginza Nodera in New York, which is pretty high-end Michelin star um, restaurant. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. as uh, Kajitsu. So as Kajitsu, yeah. Right. So uh, what was your position at uh, the Sushi Ginza Nodera, and uh, what did you learn? So I wanted to expand my knowledge beyond just vegetables. Um, I learned a huge amount from Kajitsu, but... Um, Ultimately, I wasn't interested in necessarily pursuing strict shojin food for the rest of my career, so I wanted to learn some more varied um, applications of Japanese food. So I went to Onodera at the time, um, not to learn sushi per se, but to learn handling of fish and systems and uh, yeah, broader Japanese cuisine. The sushi restaurant doesn't serve only sushi. There's a pretty intricate course menu of small otsumami before the sushi right. arrives to the to the guest uh so i was in charge of doing all that the uh all the otsumami wow that's a big deal yeah <laughs> uh it's you know in terms of number of courses it was almost the same number of otsumami at dinner to the number of sushi being served so it was half the half the menu right yeah. and then that's where you can find a personality of sushi restaurant too. right yeah yeah right so, but I'm curious, so, so, you know, basically CIA teaches you the basics of French cuisine and expand based on that. That's what yeah. I heard. The CIA has great uh, Italian education, well, Italian cuisine education, uh, Spanish food, French food. We spent exactly two days on Japanese food in mm. the two-year program. So it's very, very, you're just, <laughs> you know, touching on it. Right. Um, but you didn't have any question to yourself, like, should I do French or Italian or... No, at that time, um, at, by the time I was at CIA, I had already been to Japan and already fell in love with that. What oh. I wanted to get was just the base of, of culinary knowledge, understanding how proteins work, understanding how starches work, mm-hmm. more of the building blocks rather than picking a nationality or a, or a, you know, a style of cooking, per se. Right. Okay. So, um, so that you worked at the Arashiyama Kumahiko in Kyoto from yes. September to 2017 to uh, the last uh, September, so 2019, yeah, for two years. years. Yeah. So, and Arashiyama Kumahiko, of course, is one of the most uh, famous kaiseki restaurants in Kyoto or uh, in Japan, for that matter. Um, so, how did you get the, the job there? During my time at Onodera, um, I was coming to the end of my American visa because I could only work here for a year. Um, and luckily, right, you know, a month before I was about to go back to Toronto, um, after my visa expired, right in that time, a friend sent me a message about this, uh, program that existed that the, uh, the Japanese Ministry of Agriculture was running to bring in foreign chefs to train in traditional kaiseki restaurants. Uh, at the time, I didn't think much of it. I just assumed that there was no time left and, you know, I wasn't even going to get in anyways. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just, you know, sent in the application and... I heard back from them. Uh, so, yeah, before I knew it, a month later, I was on a plane to Tokyo and then Kyoto. Um, wow. Yeah, so it's a, a Ministry of Agriculture-run program. Right. So how, how many months was it, the program? Was? That program was eight months. It was a month of uh, language school, a month of cooking school in Kyoto, mm-hmm. and then six months of work at uh, one of the 15 Japanese restaurants that one of the 15 students would be would be put into. Right. So for me, that was Kumahiko. Mm. And that's where I chose to stay for, for the next year and a half after that. Okay. So I assume the Kumahiko signed up for, um, as a one restaurant, to accept. Exactly. The chef there is very involved with the government, and he does a lot of work uh, to spread awareness of Japanese culture and cuisine around the world. Mm. Yeah. Right. 
Okay, so um, so what is the history and concept of Arashiyama Kumahiko? Kumahiko is the, well, the current chef, uh, Motoi Kurisan, is uh, the third generation owner. His father actually founded what is known as Kapo Ryori in, J- in Japan, which is sort of a counter interactive, very intimate dining experience that, you know, uh, doesn't exist much in North America, but is mm-hmm. quite common in, right. in Japan. It's slightly less formal than kaiseki, but it's more yeah. interactive. Exactly. It's all about your, you as the guest, your interaction with the chef. Right. Um, so his grandfather founded that. That concept didn't really exist before uh, mm. Tankuma existed, which is the, the restaurant group. Um, so that restaurant has existed now for two generations in Arashiyama, one of the suburbs of Kyoto. Uh, they follow pretty traditional, pretty strict kaiseki cuisine. Um, and it was a wonderful, wonderful opportunity for me. I, I had never had access to anything like that mm. in my life before. And uh, yeah, I'm lucky I ended up there. Right. So, of course, Kyoto is the, the mecca of kaiseki cuisine. Absolutely, yeah. Right. Okay. And uh, so, so the program offered by the Japanese government you know, the Ministry of Agriculture it was eight months, but you ended up staying for two years. So how did you manage to stay so long? Well, the program that runs at the body is also in charge of uh, sort of a separate program that allows people to stay up to five years in Kyoto. Um, so it was pretty sort of seamless transfer. I mm-hmm. came back for a couple of weeks to Toronto, reapplied for my visa, and they handled everything for me and mm. uh, allowed me to come back right. to Kumahiko. So that's by the Kyoto city of Kyoto? That is the city of Kyoto, yes. So ah. the city of Kyoto works with the Ministry of Agriculture and the Japanese Culinary Academy, and the three of them uh, do a lot of collaborative work. Mm. Yeah. Wow. I heard it's a special um, kind of a treaty. That Just for checked. Kyoto city, yes, right. exactly. Yeah. Because they are willing to have more foreign chefs to promote Kaisi cuisine? Yes, yeah, yeah. That's one of the initiatives, sort of a surprising initiative, because it's a city that's so set in their ways, so traditional. Right, and, and they, first year they rejected Michelin. That, yes, yeah. yes, 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 absolutely. So, well, that's a really a good thing yeah. to happen. Um, so are there any other um, non-Japanese chefs who worked with, with you within Kyoto? Because uh, the chef, Kurisan at uh, Kumahiko, mm. was so involved with spreading Japanese cuisine culture around the world, he had a number of non-Japanese people working at his restaurant. My predecessor, who was in the same program as me the year before, uh, Edgar's, was from um, uh, Latvia and Denmark. Uh, so he was there a year before I was. And then a woman from Thailand was also with us. Mm. Uh, so it was sort of a very international kitchen. Wow. Extremely traditional, but the, the staff was from all over the world. At one point, we had more, you know, the three of us, it was three uh, foreigners, three gaijin and three... Wow. Japanese chefs, so sort of a 50-50 mix in the kitchen. Uh, so the language was English or was a mixture of whatever? <laughs> uh, yeah, mostly Japanese. Yeah, all of us did a great job learning Japanese. And right. uh, I mean, it's a kind of, it's a sink or swim environment, so you don't have a choice. You're going to learn Japanese, right. even if it's only kitchen, kitchen language. Right. So before you went to Japan, but you studied Japanese as well? Uh, no, I hadn't. So when I was working at Kajitsu, I was working entirely with Japanese chefs who had been brought in from Kyoto and other areas of Japan. So at that point, I didn't speak a word of Japanese. Um, and I learned, you know, the greetings and all the ingredient and tool names, what you need to survive in a kitchen. But I couldn't put a sentence together at all mm. before I went to Japan. Um, then we did a month of language school. That helped a lot. And it wasn't really until I ended up at Kumahiko that I could start mm. talking and, and really learning in Japanese. Right. Because you had to. Yeah, there was no choice. Right. And also yeah. you wanted to. I'm sure. Right. Yeah. Right. And over some glass of sake, I'm sure you did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, yeah, a lot of hours in the kitchen. Right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, so we'll take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll uh, delve into uh, John's experience at Tarashima Kumahiko. So please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. 
the knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan-Asian to American, and that is why they are located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view the exquisitely designed tableware and the wireless natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services, from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit corin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japanese broadcasting live from a studio at Bushwick, Brooklyn. Um, I'm your host, Akiko Tayama, and my guest today is John Clip, who worked at one of the greatest kaiseki restaurants in Japan called Arashiyama Kumahiko for, in Kyoto for two years until last September. So uh, so what was your position at Kumahiko? Is it like a trainee position? Yeah, when I started, I was right at the bottom. Um, I was working under a couple foreign cooks as well as some Japanese cooks and the executive chef there. Um, the kitchen team was so small that, uh, like I said before, you know, it's a, it's a sink or swim environment there where if you're not able to do it, um, just the work becomes impossible. So <laughs> everybody is pushing themselves very, very hard to do as much as they can. Uh, when I left, I left as the, you know, most experienced cook in the kitchen there, second to the Ryoricho, the, uh, wow. you know, chef de cuisine there. Mm. Um, so how many people in the team, in the kitchen? It varied a little over the two years I was there, but for the most part, it was five of us. Wow. Yeah. So really, like, you have to be uh, useful. Right. At other kitchens, more famous kitchens, so like Kikunoi in Kyoto, where they have, you know, 20 people in the kitchens. It's very regimented. Each station in the kitchen uh, will have, you know, a senpai and a kohai, a junior and a senior person. And uh, the training system is much more regimented because they can afford to. Mm. They can afford to take their time with people. At uh, Kumahiko, where I was, if you, you had no choice, you had to succeed. You had to do it. Um, <laughs> so when I left there, my position was um, uh, running the yakimono station, all the grilled food mm-hmm. out of their, their grilled, uh, you know, Japanese grill, if you will. Um, and all of the sushi and everything that was fried and uh, so it's uh, sushi yagimono, yakimono and uh, coordinating a lot of the catering and stuff like that. Mm. Yeah. Right. So um, was the system different from, um, you know, like typical American kitchen? Totally different, yeah. So How in America, <laughs> or in North America, I should say, because it's the same in, in Canada, um, you're lucky to have an employee for a year. If somebody comes into your kitchen, chances are you'll have them for a year. If you're a well-established restaurant, if you run your kitchen well, maybe you can hold on to people for two or three years. So you have to be able to train somebody to be very useful to you in three years. In Japan, at least the old system is a kid comes in after high school or during junior high school, and they'll commit 11, 20 years to you right off the bat. So you have this person to mold and to nurture for 20 years. Now as a human years. being, you grow a yeah. person. <laughs> that person becomes part of your restaurant. Uh, so the training process is totally different. The training process to you know, learn the basics normally is about a five-year process. Uh, that was sort of accelerated at Kumahiko because we didn't have 20 people there to be doing everything. So uh, the learning had to be, had to be accelerated. Yeah. Mm, right. So, but the station-based that system is the same, but you have to probably cover multiple if you have to. As yeah. Rescue. So a lot of it has less to do with the kitchen, but more about the food itself. In North America, we break up foods, you know, in appetizers, mains, and desserts, or, you know, subsections of that. In Japanese cuisine, they tend to break up their dishes based on the cooking technique. So there'll be a fried course, there'll be a grilled course, there'll be a simmered course, a raw course, and the kitchen's broken up that way too. Mm-hmm. So each one of those appliances... Uh, is a station. There's the grill, there's the gas uh, stove with all the pots where all the simmered dishes are made. Um, there's the mukoita station where all the sashimi, the raw fish, the raw mm. preparations come, come out of, and you move your way through those stations. Right. Interesting. Mm. So, I don't know which is better or not, but uh, I yeah, sounds like... just you, different. Yeah. yeah, but you learned a lot from yeah, different Yeah, huge systems. amount, huge amount. 
Um, what was the most challenging out of many? <laughs> most challenging thing by far was the culture. Um, I thought it was going to have to do with skill and, you know, learning how to do katsuramuki and learning how to do all these uh, complicated knife cuts that I, I wasn't familiar with before, uh, before kashitsu. But um, really it was a kitchen culture. And that's what I got the most out of my time at kashitsu was understanding how Japanese chefs work, understanding what, is, what it means to be a Japanese cook mm. and what my role was there because... Uh, I'm a, I'm a tourist to some extent in that in that world. Uh, what what would my role be, and and how do I make the most of it? Mm. Yeah. So, but you know, in a regular American restaurant, that's also you are expecting yourself a certain kind of you know whatever. But right, kitchen it, culture in America is a very unique as well, um, and I was used to that. I had worked in that at that point for mm. a, a few years in Toronto. Um, Japanese. What are the big differences between? Uh, North American and, and Japanese kitchen cultures. Um, it has to do with the history for sure. The It seems to me that uh, so many more people in Japan identify with who they are through their job in kitchens. So the cooks are first and foremost cooks as humans. That's their life. It's, it's in their work. Um, in Japan. In Japan, yeah. Right. In Kyoto. Hmm. So um, that took some getting used to. Uh, I thought, you know, I thought I was working hard in kitchens in Canada. I thought I was working. I thought people were really serious about their jobs um, mm. because they are, you know, absolutely cooks in North right. America are so serious. Sounds like it's about the craftsmanship, like you. Yeah, craftsmanship for sure. Mm. Yeah. Right. So, and I think it's a, um, in any job situation in America, it's more kind of transient. Yeah, my mindset. Yeah, absolutely. Right, but yeah. in Japan, like once you are here, I'm responsible for the rest of whatever <laughs> yeah. it takes. So that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so what was the biggest learning, you think? I mean, you can just tell me any, as many as you want. The biggest learning was really the, the small slice of, of understanding Japanese food culture that I was able to get out of my time there in Japan. Uh, the reductive nature of it, the fact that it's so minimal, so simplistic, and yet so beautiful and so perfect. It's, it's so refined. Mm. Uh, so being able to, to learn that there. What uh, do you think is supporting that simplicity? I think a lot of it has to do with Japanese culture and aesthetic, not necessarily just in the kitchen, but you see it in a lot of aspects of Japan in the architecture and the art. Mm. Um, that's one of the biggest differences in cuisine versus the rest of the world is the fact that it's reductive. So it's about taking things away. It's about removing the unnecessary and mm. boiling something down to where it is perfect. Whereas other cultures are building a dish. You're, you're mm. constructing flavors. You're making this pyramid that ends up being something beautiful. And one's not better than the other, but they're, they're opposites in terms of philosophy. Mm. So it's a cover out what it is rather than... Build, yeah, right. yeah. Interesting. So this minimalist, but minimalist is not, I don't think it's enough word to describe. No, no, it, I, I don't even think I could describe it in a lifetime. Yeah. Right. That's great. So you have the whole rest of your life to describe it. Right, I'll do my best, <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, okay, so what was your favorite dish to cook at the Kumahiko? In Japan, the culture of fish was something that I wasn't prepared for. I knew it was going to be better. You know, we hear in North America that they have so much more fish culture, eating raw fish, eating cooked fish even. Uh, in Japan is a totally different thing than, than our approach to it here in, in North America. But yeah, being able to work with just the, the incredible quality of fish available in Kyoto was amazing. Hamo, uh, guji, and fugu, and other um, fish that are really only available in Japan mm. was such a privilege, and I, I really, really enjoyed that. Hamo is an interesting fish. Hamo is a very, very interesting fish, unique right. to Kyoto, yeah. Right. Um, and uh, honegiri is like, maybe you can just explain what hamo Yeah, so uh, hamo is an eel. It's a, called a pike conger eel in English, even though we don't have that fish in any English-speaking country. Um, it's a long, white-fleshed fish. Looks just like, a, you know, an eel. 
uh, and it's full of bones, so it's very, very difficult to eat, full of very, very thin pin bones with forked ends that you can't remove with tweezers the way you can other fish bones. So they're stuck there in the meat. And most other cities in Japan choose not to eat this fish because it's so hard to eat. Mm. It's full of bones. Uh, they can't be removed. Kyoto is in the middle of the landmass of the main island of Japan, and they don't have access to the ocean. Mm. So they have to be very... They have to figure out how to eat whatever they can get. And hamo turned out to be one of the fish that could survive the journey from the ocean all the way inland to the city, which would take a couple of days by foot. Mm. Um, so they had a culture of eating hamo. And the way they figured out how to eat the fish and how to make it delicious was by using a very large specialized knife to score the flesh all the way down to the skin, basically slicing every you know, half millimeter or so of the flesh and breaking up the bone so it was palatable and you don't notice it when you're eating it. Mm. Uh, so that's sort of a uniquely Kyoto right. dish. And uh, going back to knife skills, it's hard to... Extremely hard. <laughs> what you're doing is you're, you, you have a piece of fish with skin at the bottom and you're cutting 99.9% .9 of the way through, leaving the skin intact and the skin <laughs> holds it all together. And you do it every single time, mm. uh, every half millimeter. And if you screw it up, then you leave the bones intact and somebody chokes. Right. Yeah. So it's going to be a very meditative experience. If I yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to put it. That's a great way to put it. Right. Wow. Okay. Um, all right. So, uh, so what do you think is the essence of Japanese cuisine after spending two years? At this point, I'm sure it's never ending. Yeah, again, we, we would need, you know, a uh, hundred people and a lifetime to, to put that into a podcast. But I think for me, what resonated the most was the reductive nature of it. The fact that it's about a minus instead of a plus. It's not about building. It's about reducing and simplifying and, and purifying the concept and working down instead of up. Mm. That was something that I had never seen before. And it strikes me as something uniquely Japanese. Mm. Yeah. Right. I think, um, well, America is, well, North America. Right. <laughs> I think it's that we are more into going back to regional agriculture. Yeah. And ingredient-based, like really quality. So maybe that's a um, very applicable technique. I think or so. Or the mindset. I think so. Okay, um, so and I'm really surprised how Kyoto changed because it used to be unthinkable to have non-Japanese oh, yeah. chefs with old moms and you know no, come to my no. kitchen and cook. Right. So what is going on in your mind? To you, what you felt, observed, or whatever? Part of it is globalization. The world's changing everywhere through social media, through the internet, is becoming more open. Mm. Um, Japan is very resistant to that. They've kept to their own self. They've kept their, their ways alive for a very, very long time because they have been so protective of their traditions and their cultures. Um, there's fewer and fewer cooks in kitchens in Japan, not just in Kyoto, but all throughout the country. It's now if you can get a job in Starbucks, why would you put up with the 18-hour days of a Japanese kitchen? Right. So more and more young people are, are stepping out of the kitchen and choosing other professions because now it's an option. Um, so all throughout Japan, through Tokyo, Kyoto, staffing is very hard now. So it's hard to find young cooks who are willing to work. So I think that had something to do with mm. the, um, this government initiative to bring in cooks from around the world to spread Japanese cuisine internationally, but also come to Japan and, and work at these restaurants. Mm. Right, and also Japanese government, uh, it's really... Um, promoting, actively promoting Japanese cuisine outside. Japan. Yeah, that's why they yeah. got the that's UNESCO status. Well, yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. So, um, but Kyoto chefs more than one restaurant, of course. Um, you know, Kumahiko and another restaurants, Kikunoi, and yeah. So, do you see more restaurants doing some kind of a you know training, offering training programs for non-Japanese people in Kyoto? Do you see more? In Kyoto, yeah, actually, um, there's a new restaurant that just opened uh, that's taking on a lot of foreign staff. Um, when I was there, the year I was part of this program, there were 15 of us. And we weren't just in Kyoto. We were in Tokyo and Kanazawa and a couple other cities as well. But, yeah, this is now the fifth year they've been doing it. So they've, you know, had at this point roughly 50 or 60 people mm. go through this program. And it's, it's growing. Yeah. Wow. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Right. yeah. Um, but um, 
as far as you observed at Kumahiko, it's not internationalizing the cuisine, right? It's more like... Oh, the cuisine itself is not changing right? at all. No, they're, the, bringing in a couple of foreign cooks has not had any impact on the mm-hmm. food that's being served there, no. Right. The food itself is just as traditional, just as mm. simple as it always has been. Mm. Yeah. That makes sense. Right. And probably they are hoping that Japanese cuisine is going like, to prosper or develop yeah. on, the, on yeah. its own outside It's about Japan. growth for Japanese cuisine rather than uh, a collaborative thing. It's not, they're not looking to gain anything uh, in terms of like cooking techniques or practices from having these chefs in the restaurant. It's, a, it's about training them. Right. Yeah, yeah so the, uh, when I uh, got a chance to speak to uh, Mr. Yoshiro Murata, he's... Uh, course uh, the chef at Kikunoi with three Michelin stars and he said the tradition has to evolve otherwise it's gonna die so that's what's happening yeah yeah absolutely yeah, yeah all these traditions at one point were new at one point they were you know renaissance ideas they were new concepts and now we take them for granted because they have a thousand years of history behind them but at one point making matcha, whisking powdered tea mm. was a new technology that was you know a <laughs> brand new Chinese idea that didn't exist in Japan before. That is so true. So, yeah, yeah, I guess it, it will evolve inevitably. Yeah. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm sure you spend some time outside the kitchen kitchen itself, but do you discovered other parts of Japanese culture in Kyoto or outside? Or I didn't spend very, very much time outside of the kitchen. Uh, we worked very, very long hours and very hard. So most of my time in Japan was spent in that building in Kumahiko, the restaurant I was at. Um, but yeah, well, uh, I had a chance to, uh, before I left, I spent a month traveling the main island, uh, spent some time in Tokyo, staging at some other restaurants in Tokyo as well. Mm, wow. Um, in Japanese restaurants? In Japanese restaurants, yeah, all Japanese restaurants. Mm. Um, so Do you want to talk a little bit about it? Uh, sure, yeah. So the places I went to visit were, um, well, in Kyoto, it was Kikunoi and Kinobu, both other restaurants that mm. do take one foreigner every year to be part of their kitchen in the same program. Um, so I had, because they were part of the same program, I had access to them and, and it was easy to talk to them. Mm. Um, yeah, Kinobu is another great restaurant. Yeah, another huge uh, kaiseki monster in, in right. Kyoto, yeah. <laughs> um, and then in Tokyo, I was with uh, sort of a much trendier restaurant, less traditional restaurant called Den, mm. uh, run by Zayu Hasegawa. Right, that's um, one of the uh, world... 50 world best restaurants. Yeah, yeah, right. exactly. So I was there for about a week. Um, and How was it? Very good, very interesting, very refreshing. Mm. Uh, definitely more modern than Kyoto is. Um, yeah, refreshing is a good word. It was it was interesting to see what they're doing there. They seem like really great people at Den. Mm. Yeah. It's more like I, I heard of it very open, free, like teamwork. Yeah. Like, of course, it's in a different Constantly spirit. doing collaborations, very collaborative people who, who do a lot with not just other chefs in Japan, but chefs from all over the world are mm. constantly working with them. Right. Yeah. Wow. And yeah. then? Uh, a couple other restaurants. Uh, Tenoshima, who used to be the... Um, uh, Hayashi-san used to be the executive chef or the you know chef de cuisine at Kikunoi in Kyoto, who eventually opened his own restaurant in Aoyama in Tokyo. Mm. Uh, again, another very brilliant person who's looking a little more... Internationally, looking a little more, has a more modern sensibility about him um, and applies that to his kaiseki approach. Mm. Yeah. So it sounds like there is an interesting contrast between kaiseki restaurants in Kyoto and in Tokyo. Certainly, certainly. Right. Uh, Tokyo is much, much more progressive. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. And I'm so glad that you're able to find all the staging opportunities. Yeah, yeah, it's easy. It's, uh, you know, once, once you understand the, the kitchen culture and... Um, what it means to to work in a Japanese restaurant. So many people are open to talking and training, and mm. they're they're all very very open. Yeah. Right. Wow. Okay. And uh, so um, you just won the North America tournament of the seventh Japanese culinary art competition, which was held in New York on January thirteenth. Um, congratulations. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. This is a huge deal. And uh, then you're going to Japan. Right, so this finals. was the preliminary round. Yeah, the finals are in Japan. Right, so what is this um, competition about? It's a competition the Japanese Culinary Academy runs every two years, uh, and it's mostly for Japanese chefs. They take uh, roughly 10 to 15 chefs from the various prefectures in Japan, 
and have a cooking competition with them in Kyoto. Um, and then they also take one chef from, I believe it is London, Hong Kong, and New York. I could be wrong. Mm. But uh, from, from elsewhere in the world uh, to compete in this final. Um, so I just won the preliminary round and then I have the, you know, the final coming up in March. In North America. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But the thing is, you're going to compete with Japanese, yeah. Japanese chefs. So, <laughs> so. You know, the, I'm really happy and excited to win the first round. Uh, there's no, no chance in, you know. I think you have a good chance to win. I'm, I'll be happy to show up and, uh, you know, meet these people that I'll be competing against in March. Right. Yeah, because they're going to be, you know, 40 to 50-year-old cooks who have devoted their whole life to, to mm. kaiseki food. And, uh, right. Well, I think, yeah. in a way, you have a very strong position because you observe Japanese cuisine very analytically and objectively because you have to. Yeah. That's my well, idea. Thank you. I'm, I'm hoping that'll uh, right. so, help me out. Yeah, from whatever, like, for instance, I listen to, um, you know, sake experts, non-Japanese sake experts. Yeah. They can explain a way better than I can because they see it differently. Right, and right, you, right. And as a Japanese person, so you took it for granted that you knew, but... Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to... Oh, I didn't know that. To realizing I didn't know, which is a very hard part. Well, that's interesting, yeah. Yeah, so... Yeah, New York has some amazing sake experts. Uh, you had you've had some on your show, uh, yeah. Yeah, and they are really ambassadors and promoters. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like you are in your food. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I don't think I'm quite there yet. Right. So, um, yeah. So the, this competition, um, what was uh, the theme of the one you just won? So it was a very complicated word to express in English, um, shoku no hanayagi, which. Is a reference. It's an aesthetic principle um, in Japanese, which is a reference to flowers. So mm. the theme of the beauty of a flower in in food, right. which in Japanese cuisine is quite easy to work with because there's so many different ways to represent flowers. Traditionally, in mm -hmm. in food, you can cut food into the shape of flowers. You can uh, fry the scales of fish to look like flowers. There's so many different applications right. uh, that it's already exist. It's kind of exist. like uplifting ambience on the table. Right, yeah, the bounty of nature, exactly. Right, right, right. right. So well, that's hard. And very, very, <laughs> very hard. And it's very hard even just for an English speaker to understand those, those concepts, yeah. Mm, right, so how did you do that? How did you express? Um, I tried to focus on uh, the simplicity of nature and the beauty of nature so not not to present anything that looked too man-made but something that was aesthetically natural um, mm. one of the things I did was uh, a piece of grilled amadai with um, the skins fried under boiling oil and it sort of blooms the scales and mm. it's a very natural rustic look but it's also very intricate sort of the way that you know a flower can be both intricate, elegant, but also natural. Mm. And also with kind of a uniquely Japanese taste and texture. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a very, very traditional cooking method. Right. Yeah. Wow. And uh, so in March, um, so what's the same in March, the finals March? In March, I'm not sure if it's going to be the same aesthetic theme, but the competition will be very different. It'll be a black box style shokado bento mm. menu. So we'll like a lacquered Right. F formal bento box. Right, a four-section bento box with four different dishes inside of a bento about, you know, a foot by a foot across. Um, and, yeah, four different styles of food being prepared inside of that very traditional. Mm. Um, right, so shokado bento is like, there's so many bentos, but it's more like typically if you go to theater or some formal events, that's the style. That's what they'll serve. Yeah, it has the whole meal inside of it. It has rice. Sometimes it's also served with soup on the side. And then it'll have three other preparations of food. It could be a grilled dish or simmered dishes or uh, pickled dishes as well. Right. Um, but yeah, the big challenge in March, which we didn't have just now in January, will be that it's black box, so we don't have access to any any of the ingredients ahead of time. Wow. We will be surprised with, with what <laughs> we're going to have to work with. Mm. Yeah. So, um, and you can be creative or non-creative. Right. Well, I'm going to have to be creative because I'm going to have no time to write the menu ahead of time. Right. I'll, I'll have to be very creative very quickly. Yeah. Right. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so keep me posted. And if you have 
great experience. You can come back and talk about it. Right. And if I fail miserably, I'd love to talk about that. Too. Yeah, yeah. I love you. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Either way, I'm sure that you have a good chance to great. win. So. And so now you're back in your hometown, Toronto. So what are you doing now? I have some long-term goals for what I want to do in Toronto. Um, I would love to have my own restaurant there, and I'm working to make that happen eventually. Um, I want to change the way that we eat fish in North America as well. So that's going to be based out of Toronto. In the spring, I'll be going up and working with some local fishermen to sort of change the way that the uh, fishing industry runs. Mm. Right now, we have some really medieval practices going on in North America compared to Japan in terms of <laughs> the way fish is caught, the way it's handled, and the way that restaurants are able to use it. Um, so hopefully I'm going to be part of a movement mm. to sort of modernize and just come up with better better quality and more sustainable fishing practices right. and handling. Yeah, yeah I, uh, I had a conversation before that, you know, for instance, in Japan, the fish is packaged based on the size of each fish yeah. and not like get stuck on top of right, the other right. fish. And the, of course, the bottom one is going to be smashed and crashed. Yeah, yeah. And that's such a waste of, you know, precious right, right. ingredients. And uh, of course, I get, you know, Ikejime technique that's, you know, yeah, destroys particle. But I heard that, I think it's in Boston, there are more fishermen. Slowly, the gears are moving. Yeah, it's going to take a lot of people and a lot of hard work mm. to change the way that things are in North America. But yeah, the wheels have started to turn especially here in Maine and Boston and in California. Mm. In Canada, we're still far behind, so, so my job is to uh, mm. speed that up a little bit. Yeah. But, I, you know, like, the, the Toronto has so many knife shops. It makes no sense, yeah. <laughs> the, our, our knife shops are amazing, but the fish that we cut with those knives is uh, pretty low quality for the most part. Well, I think uh, because now everybody wants to preserve precious um, ingredients from the ocean, yeah. and uh, I think the way... I had a discussion with, uh, you know, food business and the fish, fishery business people. They have to be rewarded financially. Absolutely. And it, it, the, the system can't change until the fishermen are living a better life. Right. Yeah. So they have to start providing quality ingredients. And there are buyers, so-called Japanese restaurants, sushi restaurants. Yeah. And I think the market is ready. The market so is absolutely ready. All sorts of restaurants in you know, New York and Toronto as well, are flying fish over from Japan to serve in the restaurants in New York. Mm. If, if you're buying tuna, bluefin tuna, from Canada in Toronto, that tuna flies to Tokyo, <laughs> to Toyosu Market, gets processed there and flies back to Toronto. That may, like, why, why are we doing that? Why are we putting fish on planes uh, when we have it in our own oceans? And so, carbon footprints and everything is so it's bad. horrible, yeah. Right, so... Yeah, well, that's a part of, well, it's probably beyond being a chef, but that's Absolutely, a very Absolutely, yeah, important it's going to be a lifelong mission, yeah. Right, and I think uh, considering everybody's concerns about ecology, yeah. especially every nowadays. year it gets worse and worse and it becomes more important and we yeah. have to be more careful and, and change, yeah. So maybe, I think it's easy to create a group of chefs and whoever's yeah. concerned. There's a lot of passionate people out there, so right. I'm excited to be working with them and, and start the change. Yeah. Right. Well, keep me posted. Yeah. I'll be happy yeah. to promote whatever please, you do. Please, please. Thank you. Right. Um, so how would you like to apply what you learned in Japan and culinary you know, techniques and the ideas of what it is? What do you plan to express in your restaurant? eventually your own restaurant. So Toronto's a lot like New York in that it's a melting pot of cultures. Um, we have small communities that have set up in Toronto from all over the world, from Nepal, from Trinidad, from the, the stretches of the globe. Um, we have lots of food available in Toronto from those places, just like you have in New York. But we don't have our own food culture the way that Japan does. And I think, I mean, I've only lived in New York for a short period of time, but I think it's a, sort of the same to say in New York. Um, there's no unique food culture that is inherently New York or is inherently mm -hmm. Toronto. When a Japanese person goes to a Japanese restaurant, they eat kaiseki food uh, or they eat their own, you know, they're eating washoku or, or their own culture's food. They're connecting not only with 
their family at the table, but it's also their history, their culture, mm. the place, the time. All those things are, are present in the meal. And it's, it's a, such a beautiful experience mm. to be able to do that in Japan. We don't really have a system that offers that in Toronto or in New York that I've seen where people are connecting with who they are deeply and personally and emotionally while they eat dinner. Mm. So I want to take aspects of what exists in Japan and figure out a way to translate that uh, to something that's inherently Canadian, inherently Toronto, mm. and eventually have a restaurant where people feel like they are Torontonian mm. while they eat. And yeah, something culturally stimulating. Right. Oh, that's the beauty of it, right? Because yeah. of the, you know, you're not bound to be certain something. Right. You're free to express and... And, you know, if, if I was to replicate what I was doing in Kyoto, serving people from Kyoto, Kyoto vegetables, Kyoto fish, prepared in a style that is authentically from Kyoto, mm -hmm. if I do that in Toronto, it makes no sense. Right. I'd be flying ingredients from Japan. I wouldn't be cooking from four people from Kyoto. Every, everything just falls apart. Uh, it would have no, no value anymore. Mm. So for me to be as authentic as possible, I have to be serving something that is from where I am, something that is seasonal, something that is relevant. Yeah. Mm. And based on the, the reductive mindset. Exactly. I'm, gonna, I'm definitely going to keep that alive. Yeah. Right. Well, that way the you know, local fish could shine more right. than blurred right. by something absolutely, else. Absolutely, absolutely. Right. Whoa, I'm excited. <laughs> so when you open, let me know. I'll Please. be there. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, where can we find you? Uh, updates, your updates online? Any? Um, the only social media I'm really using right now is on Instagram. So I keep trying to keep my job updated through that. Uh, yeah. So what's the address? Uh, John Clip, K-L-I-P is my last name. Okay. Uh, yeah. Great. All right. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and uh, congratulations. Good luck in March. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japanneeds at heritageradionetwork.org or on kikuatema.com. Japan Needs is uh, live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer is uh, Jesse Klein-George. And thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Japan Needs is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.